So tonight's sermon will come out of Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. I'll be reading from the ESV version. Uh, I invite you all to grab a Bible uh, and follow along. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and weep for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your cons consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thank you, Isaiah. Good evening, everyone. As I grow older, I still look forward in life to what it will look like when I'm set up one day, when I have the things that I believe will make me happy, the right house, the right spouse, the right car, the right friends. These are all things that the world could look at and they could approve of and applaud, whether or not they're Christians or not. And as I look at the things that Jesus says will make someone truly happy, I find that there's a disagreement so oftentimes between what I value and what Jesus teaches. And so what I find is that my values need adjustment. And perhaps your values need adjustment as well. I want us to ask this evening, what does Jesus say the blessed life is really like? What does he say the good life is really like? He's going to tell us exactly what that is in our text this evening that Isaiah just read to us. Last week, we heard Daniel's helpful sermon about how God began a new people through his 12 apostles. Luke 6, 12 says Jesus went up on a mountain to meet with God and choose 12 apostles. That he came down from that mountain to a plain and found a great crowd gathered there waiting for him. At this point, he preaches one of the most extensive sermons that we have recorded from, from him. It might be the same sermon from Matthew, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Here it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Or it could just be another iteration of that sermon, assuming that he preached it more than once. Now, one problem is that we can read this whole sermon in about two minutes. I find it hard to believe that these crowds traveled maybe days to come see Jesus, and he stands up and preaches to them for two minutes. Likely what we have here is Luke condensed and summarized Jesus' sermon under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to deliver it to us into this form exactly as we have it. And this sermon is actually so rich and so full of truth that it's going to take us four sermons to unpack it, and we could have spent way longer than that. So the next few weeks, we're going to enter into a sermon series, a mini-sermon series on Luke, on the Sermon on the Plain. 
Now, I cannot overemphasize the significance of this sermon. Here we have some of the most original and basic teaching in the new covenant. And the imagery that we have before us should not be lost upon us. Here we have Jesus descending from a mountain down to God's people. The imagery parallels Moses as he came down from Mount Sinai and gave his people the law. So what we have here in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain is God's new law for God's new people. Let us begin to see what new law our Lord gave to us on this day. Verse 20 begins, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, this text has been referred to as the Beatitudes, which for a lot of my life, I thought meant I need to be these attitudes, which is actually not super far from the truth, but it's not technically what that word means. Beatitude is just the Latin word for blessed. So what we have here in this sermon are four statements of blessing and four statements of woe, which is the opposite of blessing. So Jesus is going to show us what truly is the blessed life and what life God truly rejects and brings judgment upon. Before we go any further, we should each ask ourselves, do I know what the word blessed means? There's a lot of words that we can throw around in Christianity that we think we know what they mean, but then when we actually have to define them, it's a little tougher. And actually, there's more than one Greek word that we translate blessed in English. And this particular word that we see in our passage actually just means happy. So if you're reading this passage and you're wondering what does it mean, you can just replace the word blessed with happy if that helps you understand what it means. Yet the concept of happiness we see in this passage differs a little bit from our expectations of what happiness is. In our culture, happiness is typically a surface-level response to our present circumstances. Things are going well, we tend to say we're happy. Things are not going well, we tend to say I'm not happy or I'm sad. Yet what we see here in Jesus' definition of happiness is that it's a joy that goes down deeper in our, into our hearts and goes deeper than our circumstances and even perseveres in the midst of suffering. Jesus talks about a happiness that perseveres in the Beatitudes. Strikingly, when Jesus starts off with the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, happy are the poor. What a counterintuitive thing to say. There's no child who grows up saying, I want to be poor when I grow up. And here's Jesus coming and saying, the poor are the ones who are happy. And what we're actually going to see in this text is four great reversals. Where Jesus overturns the world's logic and the world's expectations. What the world praises and what the world celebrates, Jesus will say, this will not ultimately make you happy. And what the world despises and the world rejects, Jesus says, this is what God blesses and will make you happy. 
Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And by upside-down, I mean that it defies human expectations and intuition. So be ready to be surprised and shocked as you hear Jesus explain what truly makes a person to be happy. Now, I want you to turn to our text and into the words. He talks about the poor. He talks about the hungry. He talks about the weeping. And he talks about the rejected as the blessed people. Now, it's not immediately clear who this group of people is. So I want you to think to yourself for a moment. Who are the poor, weeping, hungry, rejected, yet blessed people? And as we work through this passage, we're going to see that there's actually two groups of people. So we should not think of each one of these Beatitudes as a different kind of person. But instead, we have on one hand, the group whom Jesus says are blessed. And on the other hand, the group whom Jesus says are rejected. We have those who receive blessing and those who receive woe. We're going to see that this is consistent with what other authors in the scriptures teach, that there are two groups, one whom God accepts and one whom he rejects. And we'll get to those passages in a moment that will show that what we're dealing with here in this passage is two alternatives, two different kinds of lives, one that ends in blessing and one that ends in woe. Second, we need to understand the biblical background of the words in this passage. The best tool of understanding the New Testament, you know what it is? is the Old Testament. The passage that our text refers back to in the Old Testament more than any other book is the book of the Psalms. A lot of the words that Jesus draws out and uses in our text actually refers back to the book of the Psalms, which is the worship and song book of ancient Israel. So as we dig in and try to understand what these different terms mean, we're going to spend a lot of time looking back at the Psalms, because that's the book where there's the most literary connections between our passage. So you should ask yourself, what is the first word that Psalm 1 begins with. You see, Psalm 1 is actually the first psalm that helps us set up some themes that are going to run throughout the book of the psalms. So to understand the psalms, you should start with Psalm 1. What is the first word of Psalm 1? It's blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In Psalm 1, we see two groups. We see the righteous, whom God blesses, and the wicked whom God judges, exactly the same as in our passage. And that blessed is the exact same word here that we see, is happy. So Psalm 1 is actually one big beatitude. And this theme of the righteous and the wicked will actually develop throughout the Psalms. And we'll see that King David is the one who is the righteous one, oftentimes in the Psalms, the one whom God blesses, the one whom God celebrates. So as we're looking at the first beatitude, when it says, blessed is the poor, a great question to ask would be, do the Psalms teach us what it means to be poor? Does King David teach us what it means to be poor? Because if we can understand what that means, then we can have a better idea of what Jesus means here. And sure enough, David actually uses a phrase in the Psalms to refer to himself many times. 
He calls himself poor and needy. Here he is in Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And one thing we see in this verse, as it talks about being poor and needy, is we find that this term is not first and foremost about lack of material resources. To be poor is to be aware of your intense need for God's help. It's to know how badly your soul and body needs God. Poor in the Psalms and in Jesus' words is first and foremost a poverty towards God and a need for his help. David confirms this meaning later on in in the same psalm. In verse 4, he says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. What does this mean about being blessed by God? That whether or not God will come down and bless us often comes down to how we perceive ourselves. You see, those of us who perceive ourselves as self-sufficient, as not needing God's help, we won't end up crying out to God for help. Those of us who do not see ourselves as poor cannot receive the blessing of God. Since God makes rich, God blesses and helps those of us who cry out to him for his help. God says that the poor are blessed because they recognize their need for him. And God responds only to those who recognize their need for him. Do you see yourself as poor today? Do you see yourself as having no good work that can please God? Do you see yourself as intensely in need of his company, of his provision, of his help to live at every moment? If you do, blessed are you. Blessed are you. On the other hand, do you see yourself as self-sufficient? Do you see yourself as a person who can please God on your own? Do you see yourself as not needing his help and his provision at every moment, but having your own strength? Jesus has the opposite of blessing for you. He has a woe. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You will not receive comfort from God when you die. Your comfort was in this life. And judgment will await. Now, in talking about the blessings and the woes in this way, am I just dismissing the idea of material poverty? Am I just saying that that's not in Jesus' mind at all when he says, blessed are the poor? Not at all. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has a special favor and a special inclination to go first to the poor to minister to them. He goes and spends time with those who society rejects and those without material resources. Yet it's not so simple as to say those who have less things are blessed by God and those who have more things are not blessed by God. 
It doesn't make sense of what we see in the Psalms. It doesn't make sense of what we see in this book. Because Luke says that you have to repent in order to be saved. And poor people may or may not repent. And rich people may or may not repent. So what's a better explanation? A better explanation is that a lack of material goods and poverty is a parable. It's a visual image. It shows us what we're like before God. When someone has intense need in this life and a lack of material provisions and resources, it shows how badly they actually need God at a deeper level than even the resources that they lack in this life. Jesus loved to go and minister to the poor because it created such a beautiful image of what his kingdom is like when God meets our needs. And so we should think of Jesus as referencing the poor in the sense that they teach us what it's like to need God. They show us what it's like when we need God. The poor villagers who came to hear Jesus teach would have understood every one of these words so well. They would have labored for a few decades and then died. They would have experienced seasons of hunger and want. They probably were hungering for food as they sat there listening to Jesus teach. God does not love someone more because they're poor rather than they're rich. But oftentimes, he uses their poverty as a way to show them of their need for him and bring them to himself. I think that's one big reason we see Jesus spending so much time with the poor in the Gospel of Luke. And we as Americans should take heed. We're some of the richest and wealthiest people in the history of the world and in the world today. And while God still loves us and Jesus opens up the way of salvation to us, our riches can blind us to our need for Jesus. Our prosperity can make us feel independent and like we don't need him. So don't dismiss the idea of Jesus saying, blessed are the poor. If you're rich, take extra precautions to remind yourself of your need for God, to repent of your trust in riches, to turn from your independence and self-reliance and turn to Christ and ask for God's help to do that. To live in America and follow Jesus and depend on him will take a work of God. So blessed are the poor. Now we see in this verse what reason we have that the poor are blessed. What, what reason, what does he say why the poor are blessed? He says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God refers to the future time when Jesus will return to the earth and remake it and perfectly take care of and bless his people forever. The fact that the kingdom of God is in the present tense shows us how sure of a possession it is for God's people. This future reality, this kingdom of God, is certainly yours if you'll come to God as a poor one. The rest of the Beatitudes are actually going to illuminate and describe this kingdom for us and help us to see what coming reality 
is guaranteed and assured for anyone who will come to God as a poor person. We can see the next beatitude in verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. So Luke, again, talks about a great reversal. And now he contrasts the present with the future. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. In scripture, the biblical authors talk a lot about a feast at the end of all things. When Jesus comes back and his people feast and dine with him. It's likely that Jesus is looking forward to that event in the future. And what just teaches us is that to figure out what the blessed life is, we have to know that it consists what Jesus will bring in the future instead of whatever we can get out of this life right now. This challenges so many people's definition of blessed. So many people will define the blessed, will refer to themselves as blessed when they have a nice house or a nice car or a nice job. But Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. He's saying, if you look to the things that this life gives to be blessed, you're not blessed. You're the opposite of blessed. In fact, he says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Friends, if you look for your happiness and what things you can get out of this life now, woe to you. If you find your blessedness, not in the possessions you have, not in the friends you have, but in what you'll have one day when you feast with Jesus, blessed are you. The next beatitude has the same grammatical structure as this one. And it's very similar. Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Again, Jesus contrasts the present and the future. To understand the blessed life, you have to understand that there's a contrast between the present and the future. And Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. In the Psalms, laughter and weeping are images. Laughter is an image of when God restores his people's nation after it's been destroyed by their enemies, when they get their homeland back, and when their country is rebuilt. Weeping, on the other hand, is a response when enemy nations come in and destroy their country and destroy their nation as a result of their sin. You can see this contrast in Psalm 126 if you want to dig deeper. The point is that the blessed life is the one where you look forward to the day where Jesus will repair and put everything back together instead of you trying to put it back together now. Ironically, what we find when we're trying to discern what the blessed life is according to Jesus is that it's a life that's actually not even focused on this life. It's focused on the next life. And here is where the happiness comes from. The promise of future restoration and hope and life with Jesus 
and all that we'll have with him creates a happiness and a peace and a contentment in this life that's better than any blessing in this world can give and continues to bless you even when this world is a sucky place to live in. No matter how bad your life gets, nothing can touch that. If Jesus has saved you, nothing can touch that. And so you're blessed. You're happy today. If you have that to look forward to, the guaranteed, unchanging kingdom of God. If your hope is in God's kingdom in the future, instead of this fallen world, blessed are you. On the other hand, those of you who rest right now on what you have achieved in this life or will achieve in this life, Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. These Beatitudes challenge us to change the way that we perceive reality in people. So having a conversation with Pastor Sam as I was prepping for the sermon, and he brought up an excellent point. How many of us, when we see a celebrity who has everything a person could ever want, fame, success, friends, riches, when we see them, instead of envying them and wanting what they want, we think, woe is you. It'd be so hard for you to come to Christ and to know him. I pray that you do, and I know you can. But woe is you if you don't. And woe is you because these things will make it difficult for you to come to him. And on the other hand, maybe you see someone you know who suffers a lot. Who sacrifices a lot for the kingdom of God. Who serves other people. And is suffered loss and pain and rejection because of it. And you look at them. And you see their fellowship and their closeness with Jesus. And instead of thinking pity on them, you think, blessed are you. I want to have more of what you have. You know, Jesus is the ultimate example of this. We want to have what Jesus had. We want to be like Jesus. We want to enjoy his relationship with the Father. And for him, at one point, what the blessed life looked like was hanging bloody on a cross. Mm -hmm. Blessed life is not what we expect it to be. Blessed life surprises us. And it grounds itself in the future reward that God has for his people. The last beatitude is the longest, seems to be the climax of these. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Sticking to the pattern. Jesus says the future is where blessing is rather than the present. And blessed are the rejected. 
Is it any rejected? No. It's specifically those who are rejected for speaking up and sharing the love of Christ with other people. And Jesus says these people who do this and suffer rejection and scorn and hatred from others are happy, are blessed. Why would you be blessed when other people reject you? Why would you be happy when they exclude you and hate you and say evil things about you? Because, friends, there is no stronger evidence that you are living the blessed life than when you are rejected for the sake of the Son of Man. There's no stronger confirmation that you are living for future reward from God than when you suffer the hatred of others for loving them like Christ did. That's why you can leap for joy. And yet, if your love for Christ is so hidden that no one even knows you're a follower of Jesus, or you never suffer rejection for the sake of Christ, or you value the acceptance of others more than you value the acceptance of Jesus, this is what he says in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Friends, universal acceptance from others is not a sign of blessing. It's a sign of woe. And this woe hit me harder than any of them. Because, to be honest with you, I don't face a whole lot of rejection for following Jesus and speaking about him. In fact, I get a lot of acceptance in my life. So when I hear Jesus speak this, this is convicting to me. And I suppose it's convicting to a lot of us who hear this. For many of us probably don't face persecution and rejection for the sake of Christ. First and foremost, Just firstly, not foremost. First, this is a challenge for us to realign our lives with Jesus' kingdom and live for those values rather than the things this world values. And secondly, and more importantly, it's a reminder to all of us of our need for the gospel, which we're going to get to shortly. The acceptance of men that we have is a challenge for us to live for the kingdom of God and a reminder to us of our need for the gospel. Before I get to remind us of the gospel, I want to challenge us to orient and live our lives for the next one instead of this one. So church, what about our lifestyles need a change? What about our lifestyle needs to be different in light of living for eternity? We cannot say that we are blessed by God and live for the idols in this text. We cannot live for riches, for comfort, for wealth and acceptance and say, I am blessed by God. Mm -hmm. You have to choose between the kingdom of God and the American dream. Mm -hmm. 
You have to choose which set of values you're going to pursue and live for and sacrifice for. In anticipation of the future, and I want you guys to live like this, I want to ask you two questions. First question. Have you ever done anything that only makes sense in light of the life to come and doesn't make any sense in the world's eyes? Have you ever made a decision like that? Second question. What decision could God be calling you to today? What new course of action could God be calling you today? That only makes sense in light of the next life and doesn't make any sense in the eyes of this world at all. The rest of the Sermon on the Plain is actually going to unpack what that lifestyle would look like, put flesh on these bones. And I'm just going to throw out one example for you to consider. Later in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 14, Jesus says, when you throw a banquet, invite people who can't repay you in this life, but in the next life. One example of living in a way that only makes sense in the next life is to live with people who can't repay you in this life. Materially poor, social outcasts, those with mental illness, depression, or who are unbelievers. Spending time with those who can't pay you back is one way of living for the life to come. And there's so many more, so many more. At this point, you might feel like I've laid a heavy burden on your shoulders. Like I've condemned myself and condemned us for not living according to these values. And I want to remind us of one striking reality. When Jesus begins his new law, What he starts with is not what we can bring to the table. Not what we can do. He starts with our lack. He starts with our poverty towards him. The new law that Jesus gives us starts with our need and with his provision. The Beatitudes, friends, are not first and foremost a to-do list. They're an announcement of good news. Since we are poor and do need God, he will provide for us his kingdom. Jesus knows that he is the only one who has ever lived and perfectly lived out these values. I fail at them every day. And I'm guessing you do too. Yet there is one man who is perfect, who never failed for one moment to live for the kingdom, and to live for his father. Later in the Gospels, after Jesus rises from the dead, he is explaining these events to his disciples. He says in chapter 24, verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. I talked about reversals in this sermon. The greatest reversal of all will come later in the Gospel of Luke. 
when Jesus will die as a rebel. And it will look like at that moment that he had lost and that death and, and his enemies had defeated him. But actually the exact opposite had happened. At the moment he looks like he had lost is the moment he saved sinners from their sins. As we know so well, when Christ hung on the cross, he was dying in the place of people like me who tend to live for this life instead of the next life so that I can be forgiven. And when he rises from the dead, he shows that this was always God's plan to thwart his enemies. And so the great reversal church is that at the moment Jesus looked like he was losing, he was winning. The moment he was dying, he was saving and giving life. And because of that, he can say to people, blessed are the poor. Because he's paid the way for the poor to get the kingdom of God. He can give us the kingdom of God. The death of Jesus is the reason why we even have access to the blessed life at all. The death of Jesus is the way that he reverses our fortunes. He takes our poverty and our sin and gives us his riches and his righteousness. That's the great reversal that all these other great reversals depend on. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So church, if you feel guilty, burdened by your sin today, and yet you are recognizing that you're a poor person in need of forgiveness from Jesus, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. If you're listening and you're not yet a believer, you've not yet come to Christ, there isn't good news for you yet in this text. Those woes are what Jesus warns is coming. And yet his offer to you right now at this moment is if you'll come to me as poor, as needing my help, I will certainly help you. A man who hangs on a cross for other people is not someone who turns people away. This is a man of infinite love and acceptance if you will recognize yourself as poor and come to him. So if you'd like to know more about living the blessed life, being happy forever with Jesus, please ask me or any one of our other members. So the main point today is that the blessed life is about confidence in the future that God will bring to us. And that he helps and heals poor people who come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you most of all for Jesus, who made a way for us who are poor and needy to have our needs met by you. We can never meet our own needs. It's not a person who's listening to my voice who can earn their way. But that's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. 
And so please, Lord, help anyone who has not yet confessed and surrendered Jesus as Lord to do so. And help anyone who's feeling condemnation and fear to feel peace and freedom. And may the place of having our needs met, that reality, free us from the pursuits of this life to live for others and for the next life. Shape our church, Lord, with these beatitudes. May every last one of them be true of us, just as they were true of Jesus. In whose name I pray, amen.